Okay, welcome back to Healthspan. This is episode 5. On the last episode, I just finished part 1 of The Diabetes Code by Dr. Jason Fung. This episode, I will be talking about part 2 of The Diabetes Code. And Jason Fung starts out part 2 by talking about diabetes. So diabetes is exactly what it sounds. It's the unification of the words diabetes and obesity. And for the longest time, type 2 diabetes and obesity were not thought to be, be related in any way. And we really need to give credit to Dr. Walter Willett, who back in the 1990s was the first one to identify this strong relationship between weight gain and type 2 diabetes. So when the obesity epidemic started getting underway in the 1970s, it was kind of a second thought because in the, 19, in the, the 1970s, AIDS was the main topic being discussed and ch- trying to find a, 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 cure, a cure for AIDS and HIV. So obesity and diabetes was really an afterthought. And we need to give credit to this man again, Dr. Walter Willett, who is a professor of epidemiology and nutrition at Harvard School of Public Health, who identified this strong relationship between weight gain and, and obese, uh, weight gain or, or obesity and type 2 diabetes. So when asked exactly what a healthy diet was, Dr. Willett said his healthy diet was a healthy diet was defined as high in cereal fiber, high in polyunsaturated unsaturated fats, low in trans fats, and low in glycemic load. So you may, you may have heard the term glycemic index before. And what glycemic index is, is it, is it measures the rise in blood glucose after ingesting 50 grams of carbohydrate-containing foods. So in other words, when you ingest food, how much your blood glucose will spike after eating that food is the glycemic index of that of that food. So normally foods that are high in sugar and refined carbs have higher glycemic load and dietary fibers and proteins have lower glycemic loads. And when he when Dr. Willett and his description of a healthy diet included high in dietary fats and protein, he was very ridiculed because back in the 1990s, you need to remember that healthy fats really didn't exist like the term healthy fat, it didn't exist and was kind of an oxymoron. Like, how can fat be healthy? But then we re- later realized that things like avocados, uh, certain nuts, olive oil, they can be very good for us. So he was very ridiculed, but it turns out that he was right all along. And after discussing this passage about Dr. Walter Willett, we kind of go into talking about uh, obesity and uh, abdominal obesity. So As Dr. Jason Vung puts it, today we understand clearly that obesity is the main underlying issue behind type 2 diabetes. But the problem isn't simply obesity, rather it is abdominal obesity. So basically the visceral fat that surrounds our abdominal organs. And we now know that the waist circumference, which is a measure of body fat distribution around our trunk area, is a, a, a great determiner of of type 2 diabetes. So it's a good prediction of type 2 diabetes is the the waist circumference. And it's actually a lot better way of predicting type 2 diabetes than BMI. So as Dr. Fung puts it, he states that the ratio is far more predictive of years of life loss than body mass index. And optimally, your waist circumference should be less than half your height. So for an example, if you're 5 foot 10, which is about 70 inches, you should strive to maintain a waist size of 35 inches or less. So now we have this huge correlation between waist circumference and, and 
prediction of developing type 2 diabetes. But the real question was, was what is driving this fat deposition into the organs? Like what, what is it that is causing the central obesity? And from this, from this point on, we start talking about calories. So if you listen to my podcast about the circadian code by Sachin Panda, I've mentioned before that a calorie is not a calorie. And this is something that Jason Fung also drives, drives home in his book, that a calorie is not a calorie. So the ener- energy balance model that has been really drilled into us about obesity is that fat gained is equal to calories in minus calories out. You know, this is what people are saying over and over that, oh, fat gained is just how much you take in versus how much you burn. But unfortunately, this, this statement ignores a lot of science and also has multiple assumptions. So I'm, I'm going to get to that in, in just a second. So we kind of realized this back in, again, the 1990s during this huge Women's Health Initiative study. So back in the 1990s, there was a huge randomized trial that involved 50,000 women and they evaluated the low-fat, low-calorie approach to weight loss. And after seven years of good calorie counting and good compliance, these ladies virtually had zero weight loss, and that reducing calories did not really lead to weight loss. So again, going back to the calories in, calories out thing, Jason Fung states here that the calories in, calories out theory gained widespread acceptance based on its seemingly seemingly intuitive truth. However, like a rotting melon, digging past the outer shell revealed the putrid interior. So this simplistic formula is ridiculed with erroneous assumptions. So the first assumption about calories in, calories out is that is is the belief that the basal metabolic rate or our cal- our calories out it always remains stable. So this is is not true. We know that our basal metabolic rate is always changing. So a 40% reduction in calorie intake is quickly met with a 40% decrease in our basal metabolic rate. So in other words, the net, the net result is no weight loss. So that's the first assumption is that our calories out is the same. Under that, under that equation of calories in, calories out, that's the first assumption that is being made. Now, the second assumption being made is that our weight is consciously regulated. But if you think about any other system in your body it's not it's not it's not being uh consciously regulated like your thyroid parathyroid your autonomic nervous system your respiratory your gi system renal all these systems are not consciously being regulated so body weight and body fat are strictly regulated by hormones so the first assumption we talked about is uh the belief of a, of a, the same calories output or basal metabolic rate and the second assumption is that we can consciously regulate our weight. But people who t- talk about calories in, calories out do not talk about hormones. So hormones is huge when it, comes to, when it comes to weight gain, weight loss. So he puts it here that hormone, hormones control hunger, telling our body when to eat and when to stop. So some of the few hormones that come into play are ghrelin. So remember, ghrelin makes us hungry. So ghrelin is a powerful hormone that causes hunger. And cholecystokinin and peptide YY are hormones that tell us when we are full and when we should stop eating. So hormones play a huge role in our body when it determines how much we actually eat or how much we don't eat. So 
If we eat fewer calories, our body simply compensates by decreasing our metabolic rate. And if calories are not the underlying cause of weight gain, then reducing calories can't be a reliable rate, cannot reliably reduce weight. So again, this is this is a hormonal issue. The most important factor in controlling fat accumulation and weight gain is to control the hormonal signals we receive from food, not the total number of calories we eat. So Jason Fung is hypothesizing that this obesity is really a hormonal imbalance, not a caloric one. And of course, the biggest hormone that plays a role besides the ghrelin, peptide YY, CCK, is insulin. So insulin is, is the, the cause, is the criminal here. So as he puts it, the hormonal problem in undesired waking is mainly excessive insulin. Thus, type 2 diabetes 2 is a disease about insulin imbalance rather than caloric imbalance. So we, we found the culprit. The culprit is insulin. This is the hormone that's driving the obesity. So he kind of goes into the insulin basics, and I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with insulin and how it works. But again, to put it simply, insulin works like the key, fitting snugly into the lock on, on a cell to open a gateway for glucose. So this is, this is the, the common description of, of insulin and how it's, how it's described. It is the key that opens the door for glucose to go into our cells. So in type 1 diabetes, there's abnormally low levels of insulin. So basically no keys to open the gates for glucose. And because the glucose are starved of, of energy, glucose, they are, they're, they're not able to function. And the cells face pretty much internal starvation. And these patients continuously lose weight. So that, that again is insulin the first function, which is the uptake of glucose. And the second function of insulin is giving our, our signal to store food energy for later use. So one is the uptake of glucose, second one is storage of energy. And this storage of energy occurs in two ways, or in two different forms. The first form is glycogen, which is the storage form of glucose. And the second food energy storage form is body fat. So th- let's start with glycogen first. The, the liver can only stockpile a limited amount of glycogen in the cells and once it's full we begin to move to a fat making process so glycogen is full now we're start to making start to make fat and this process of making fat is called de novo lipogenesis so de novo meaning from new lipogenesis meaning making new fat so insulin triggers the liver to turn excess glucose into new fat in the form of triglyceride molecules and these fat molecules end up getting exported into fat cells or adipocytes to supply the body with energy when when it's required. So remember in the circadian code where I talked about continuous eating throughout the day, and every time you need, every time you eat, you release insulin. Well, this insulin signal, this insulin is the signal to stop burning sugar and fat, and to start storing it instead. So this this is the exact point I was making in. Sachin Panda's book, if you're continuously eating, uh, you're continuously releasing insulin, and this is, as you'll find out, causing insulin resistance and, and obesity. So that is insulin, again, in a nutshell, and this is the way Jason Fung puts it. Excess of insulin drives fat accumulation and obesity. How? If our feeding periods predominate over our fasting ones, then the ensuing insulin dominance leads to fat accumulation. Too much insulin signals the liver to keep admitting glucose 
resulting in more production of new fat via DNO, which is the de novo lipogenesis. So again, too much fat, re- too much fat resulting from too much insulin. And moving forward, we talk about the carbohydrate insulin hypothesis. Hypothesis. So today we know that hyperinsulinemia, in other words, high insulin, is the thing that is causing obesity. And this point is very crucial because it makes it very obvious that to treat obesity, we need to, it, it, it all depends on lowering our insulin levels. So hyperinsulinemia, again, is causing our obesity. And again, as I mentioned before, that insulin acts like a key to open a gate for glucose to enter the cell. And sometimes in a state of insulin resistance, the usual level of insulin is not sufficient enough to is not sufficient enough and glucose ends up piling up in the blood. So what do we have to do is to create more and more insulin and as a compensatory mechanism. So we need to produce more and more insulin and this will end up driving the insulin resistance. So that ended chapter 5 and he he poses the question, how does this insulin resistance develop in the first place? And to e- to even a a trickier question is is it the obesity that is causing insulin resistance resistance or does is insulin resistance cause obesity so this is the question that is is being posed is does one cause the other or does the other or in other words does obesity cause insulin resistance or does insulin resistance cause obesity so let's let's look at the first example can obesity cause insulin resistance so if this was possible if if this if this was true what what he's saying is that how could type 2 diabetes develop in normal weight patients and also if if obesity causes insulin resistance why are so many people that are obese not diabetic so from those two questions obesity can't really cause insulin resistance now let's look at the other way around can insulin resistance cause cause obesity and again the answer is no the the so if you look at the converse converse the idea that insulin resistance causes obesity is not possible because we know for a fact that obesity typically predates insulin resistance by like a decade or two. So insulin resistance can't cause obesity because obesity comes first. And there can only be one possible other factor that's causing both of these. So he calls this factor, factor X. So as you'll find out, factor X is hyperinsulinemia. So hyperinsulinemia is driving both insulin resistance as well as obesity. So it's not one causing the other or the, the other causing causing that. It's really there's something else going on. And as you will find out that hyperinsulinemia is really the answer to both what, obesity as well as insulin resistance. So the term resistance, I'm sure you're familiar with it, but I want to talk about how resistance works and I want to use the example of antibiotics since this pertains very well. So antibiotic resistance is a huge thing now and the reason it's a huge thing is because doctors keep prescribing it when they really don't need to and over time most bacteria develop the ability to survive these high doses of antibiotics which again you turn these bugs into super bugs that are drug resistant and what what we should really be doing is removing the stimulus or 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 drug prescription, but 
but instead what we do as a knee-jerk reaction and as doctors is we just end up prescribing more antibiotics to overcome this resistance which ends up backfiring and creates even more resistance so we're creating this this vicious cycle and the only way to prevent this resistance is really restricting their use and he uses this analogy to very similarly talk about how insulin and insulin resistance works so again we're we're using insulin more and more insulin to overcome the the insulin resistance and that again is is not the answer so for resistance to develop he states that there needs to be two essential factors required so the first essential factor is high hormone levels and and the second factor is constant stimulus so if you know anything about hormones these are the chemical messengers in our body and they're released in short bursts and they also have a circadian component to it as well so our hormones aren't continuously firing they only fire at certain times and in short bursts and he states again for resistance to develop we need high hormone levels and also constant stimulus so normally insulin is released in bursts as he put it preventing insulin resistance from developing but when the body is constantly bombarded with insulin resistance develops and this ends up being a, a terrible terrible vicious cycle so he puts it exposure creates resistance resistance leads to high exposure high exposure increases resistance so it's this really this terrible terrible cycle and to make things even worse is that insulin resistance leads to higher fasting insulin levels and fasting insulin levels are normally low but again if you're continuously using using insulin th- throughout the day instead of starting the day with low insulin after a nightly fast we start the day with high insulin and again insulin is leading uh, to obesity so he puts it here as as insulin resistance becomes a larger and larger part of the problem it can in fact become a major driver of high insulin levels so obesity really is driving itself this is the point he's trying to make here and going forward we i want to talk about this overflow phenomenon so i'm not sure whether this was his his theory or who came up with it but dr jason fung is really known for talking about this overflow phenomenon so i just want to paint a quick analogy really quick so imagine a a subway train so you think about you you you're going on a subway train and think of the train as a cell and think of the people as glucose molecules and think of the conductor as insulin the one that's opening the doors so normally the train comes by so the cell comes by and the conductor or insulin will open the door and allow passengers which is glucose into the cell now of course every time a uh, a train comes by the train's empty and people will just go ahead and start going into the cell once the conductor or insulin lets them into the cell and what jason fung is hypothesizing is that the cell let's say a train comes by and there's already people on the on the train in other words there's already people inside the cell well what's going to happen is that more more glucose or more people can't enter the train because the train is already full So what hap- what has to happen is there has to be a conductor that is essentially shoving more glucose into an already stuffed cell. 
So he's described it here as hyperinsulinemia is the body's subway pusher. It shoves glucose into an already stuffed cell. So in other words, the train is full. Our cells are full of glucose, but we need hyperinsulinemia or more and more insulin to keep shoving passengers into the cell. So I, I hope this this analogy is, is, is making sense, but this is this is a his overflow phenomenon. And he states this is really the idea that's occurring in insulin resistance and, and type 2 diabetes that our our train is full, our, our tanks are full, and we can't really we can't really accommodate more and more people, in other words, more and more glucose. And again, this is leading to the insulin resistance and a, a, a terrible vicious cycle. So he puts it here as, as it spills out of the cell, which is glucose, blood glucose levels increase. So our tanks are full. Remember that our, our cells are full of glucose and we can't really accommodate anymore. Glucose ends up floating around in, in the blood. We have high blood sugar and it's leading to chronic diseases. And what about the production of new fat uh, or de novo lipogenesis? So the cell, remember, it's overflowing with glucose and it's, it's not empty. It's full of, it's full of glucose. So there's, there's no reduction in de novo lipogenesis. We're going to keep on making more and more fat. Like let's say our liver cells are full of glucose. We're going to keep making fat because the cells are there. The, glu- the glucose molecules are there. And he puts it here that instead the cells produce as much new fat as possible to relieve the internal congestion of glucose. So we need to make more room. So what do we do with that glucose cells, glucose inside our cells is we use it to make fat. So if more new fat is created, they can be exported. The fat will end up backing up in the liver, which is an organ not designed for fat storage. So I talked about this similar concept in the circadian code where normally when fat is being made in the liver, it's getting exported to adipocytes or fat where it should be. But when our fat cells are full, well, we just end up storing fat in places where it shouldn't be. And one of those places that fat is being stored is our liver. And what happens? Well, we get fatty liver. And the cell, it's not really, again, internally starved. It is overflowing with glucose. And the fin- the physical manifestation of that cell, uh, overstuffed with excessive glucose, now turns into fat via de novo lipogenesis. And that can be seen as fatty infiltration of the liver. So this is... This is NAFLD in, 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 in short term. NAFLD is non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. That, that's essentially how it's developing. It's developing from the excess glucose inside our cells, which is turning so much of the, of the glucose into, into fat. It's using, it's using de novo lipogenesis to make fat, which can't be stored in adipocytes where it should be, but instead being stored in our liver. In our liver. And this is, again, causing dysfunction. So what I really want you to take from this chapter is this idea of an overflow phenomenon. So again, I know that train analogy can be a little bit difficult to understand. Uh, you can read more about it. But th- that's the main takeaway of, of this chapter is the, the tanks are full. I keep saying tanks, but I'm, I'm meaning the, the cells. The cells are full of glucose. We can't really accommodate anymore. And that is essentially the overflow phenomenon. And again, other key points is that insulin hyperinsulinemia is causing both insulin resistance as well as obesity. And remember that truncal obesity is a huge predictor whether you develop type 2 diabetes or not. 
so I, this is a shorter part two. It was it was pretty in depth though. Um, I did the best I could to try to explain it. Uh, you can read more about this overflow phenomenon, but that's pretty much it for part two of the diabetes code. Next episode, part three, I'm going to be talking about sugar and also the rise of type 2 diabetes. So I hope you enjoyed this episode and tune in next time where we talk about sugar and also the rise of type 2 diabetes in the United States.